Well, my name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here. Uh, if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. I have been uh, traveling a little more than usual lately, but it is really, really great to be back uh, worshiping with you all. We're continuing our series on encounters with Jesus this morning, and we're looking at one of my favorite stories from the Gospel of Luke. It's a story of a sick woman and a dead girl. And this story has such a dramatic tension and, and such rich characters that it's sort of hard to know how to begin. And so I think what's happening is that this story is giving us a picture of what faith looks like in the real world, what it means to believe in the midst of tragedy and sorrow and darkness. And it's actually sort of a a live, acted-out parable of one of the stories that Jesus tells in Luke right before this passage here. And we're going to look at that in a moment. We didn't have room to print it. But as we work through the story together, we're going to kind of take three circles around it, and we're going to look at life as it is, faith in the real world, and love and consequences. So Luke opens our story with the backdrop of a crowd of people who are eager to see what Jesus is going to do next. He has just manifested two major miracles, and so the crowds are really starting to fall in love with the spectacle. They're starting to see that that this guy could be the guy. He could be the one who's going to sort of lead them out of bondage. Not only that, but he can actually provide them unlimited food. It could be great. The mood immediately darkens as Jairus comes and kneels before Jesus, begging him to heal his daughter who is about to die. And in just a few short words, Luke has included some details that raise the stakes right out of the gate because Jairus isn't just a somebody. He's not just a part of the crowd. He's a leader of the synagogue. This was a guy who was in charge of the religious worship in his community, in a community that was extremely religious. He was in charge of the reading and teaching of the Jewish scriptures that took place. This would place him in a very high rank within his community. This was a guy with power. He was someone that everyone else knew. And he's clearly undone by his situation because we're told that he kneels before Jesus. And though at this point in Jesus' ministry, he still has popularity with the crowds, he was anything but in the good graces of the religious leaders of his day. And yet Jairus kneels. He kneels before this itinerant preacher because he is overcome with the suffering that he is facing. All of his wealth, all of his status, all of his religious performance is meaningless in the face of what his daughter is now going into. His daughter, his only daughter, is dying. And Luke tells us that she's 12 years old, which in our culture we would be very sad about just because of someone so young dying, which is, is definitely true in the culture that Luke is writing to. But, but also in that time, a 12-year-old girl was one who was on the precipice of womanhood. She was entering into marital age. She was becoming a full part of the community. It's as if her life is being ripped away right in that moment. For our culture, we would consider it maybe like a high school or college graduate. Death, the familiar alien, is attempting to claim another young life. Woody Allen, that amazing preacher of neuropathy, or neuroticness rather, said once, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. (laughs) We lead very busy lives, don't we? a lot of noise, a lot of distraction. And I think it's because most of us don't want to face the reality of death. But at some point, 
in our, in our lives, whether it's through a good friend or a loved one or our own health or, or a scare on the road, we all have these moments when we realize that all of the things that we've worked toward, all of the things that we have held on to as being the most important, the absolute signifier of our identity become pale and powerless in the face of death. And all of our working and all of our striving cannot hold it back. Death will come. And Jairus is realizing that his social status is powerless in the face of death. And he's desperate. He's pleading with this miracle-working rabbi, hoping against hope that his daughter can be healed before death takes her. And what Jairus needs is a hero, and he needs a hero in a hurry. But we're told that the crowd is so thick, it begins to crush Jesus as he's on his way to Jairus' house. And that's actually a very important point. That crushing is going to become very important, as we'll see in just a moment, because Luke uses that word in another part of the story right before this one. And it's in the midst of this crushing crowd that a woman emerges. It's a nameless woman stealing up behind Jesus, and it's a woman familiar with suffering. Luke tells us that for 12 years, this woman has suffered from a discharge of blood. This was a chronic illness that was not immediately life-threatening. However, it was completely socially debilitating. In one of the parallel accounts of the story in Mark's gospel, he tells us this woman actually spent all of her money, all of her life savings on trying to find healing through different doctors. And it's not clear if these guys were quack men, but it seems like she's been taken advantage of, and she has definitely at this point become financially destitute. But beyond just her lack of financial resources. In the religious culture of Israel, this woman is considered ritually unclean. She's an outcast. She's completely untouchable. One touch is all it would take for anyone near her to become clean. Though her medical condition is not physically transmittable, it is ritually highly contagious. Think about it. If for some reason this woman got married before this disease... She is no doubt childless, which culturally speaking would have been a huge blow. Not only that, if, if she's married, her husband can't touch her at all, or he would become ritually unclean. If she's not married, there's not a man in her town that would give her a second glance. Can you imagine? For 12 years... Her uncleanness has precluded her from just basic social engagement. It has precluded her from temple worship. And in a very real sense, it has precluded her from the presence of God. Can you imagine the emotional pain that takes place after being unable to experience the simplest of things, human touch, for 12 years? For 12 years, this woman has been untouchable and invisible. If you're a regular churchgoer and you, and you think of your life in terms of weeks, imagine not being able to come to this place or the place where you worship regularly for 624 weeks. Imagine going 4,380 days without physical touch. Not a handshake. No one brushing the hair off your shoulder. No hugs. No arm around you to tell you it's going to be okay. This woman is an outcast in every sense of the word. And this is life as it is. Do you see the tension that Luke is building, though? For 12 years, Jairus has had a daughter, 
And it's all about to be ripped away from him. And for him, 12 years has gone by like that. He can remember clearly celebrating the day that she was born. He can remember all of these moments of her growing up, and it's felt like a moment. Twelve years has come and gone, but for the nameless woman, twelve years has been an eternity. She has no memory of human contact, no memory of joy. For every day that Jairus has enjoyed the life of his daughter, this woman has been an outcast, spending her hours in lonely solitude. But there's even more tension because this woman is nameless, invisible, outcast, and unclean, and Jairus is super important. Not to mention, his daughter is actually dying. There's a timetable here. This woman isn't dying. She could have caught Jesus on his return trip or some other place, but in the time that's eaten up for Jesus to interact with this nameless outcast woman, here's Jairus standing there, the man who is in charge of the religious codes, the man who would know without a doubt, that this woman is unclean. He would know what it would take for her to achieve ritual cleanness. And it's in this moment, as these two are faced with one another, that someone runs up and advises Jesus, don't bother. His daughter is already dead. So before we wrap up that storyline, I'd like us to circle back now and and look at the importance of faith in this story. Because what we're going to see is that, that different characters in this story emulate faith and non-faith in different ways. And it actually, as I said earlier, it serves to extend a parable that Jesus has just told in Luke's, in Luke's gospel. And what we're going to find out is that this is not pie-in-the-sky faith. This is faith in the real world. This is faith in the middle of darkness and unknowing. So this story follows a parable that may be familiar to some of you. And it goes like this. Jesus tells this to the crowds. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. So he tells this story, and everyone's scratching their head, and the disciples, more than anyone, come up to him totally confused, as always, and say, what in the world are you talking about? And Jesus responds by giving them an insider's look into what this parable means. He says, the seed is the word of God. The different soils represent the hearts of different people as they respond to the word of the gospel. There are some that hear the word, but before true faith can take root, it's snatched away. There are others who joyfully receive the word of the gospel, but under testing, it's shown that their faith has no root. Others believe, but their faith gets choked out by life's worries. And still others retain the gospel message, and it grows down deep in the soil of their hearts. And so, apart from Jesus, there are three main characters in this story that represent the first three soils of his parable. The first is the crowd, which for Luke functions literally as a single character. And it's in the beginning of this story that the crowd is welcoming to Jesus. They expect Jesus. They're ready for something big to happen. He's been traveling from village to village, healing people, speaking in parables, and preaching the good news of the gospel to the poor. And up until this point in Luke's telling of the gospel, for the most part, the crowd is very welcoming of Jesus. They're excited to see what he's going to do next. They learn to become expectant that the miraculous could happen when he's around. 
But this right here is the turning point. This story of Jesus and Jairus' daughter is the turning point because as he enters Jairus' house, and there are mourners all about, and Jesus tells them, don't worry, she's just asleep, which is a euphemism. He knew that she was dead. He was trying to point out the fact that he, the resurrection and the life, was present, and that he had the power to raise her from the dead. And the crowd mocks. And from this point on in Luke's gospel, the crowd begins to disperse, and eventually they will turn on Jesus completely, and their laughter will turn to angry derision, shouting, crucify, crucify. The crowd is in danger of being the first soil, the soil along the path. They hear the word, but faith isn't really present. With Jairus, his faith is shown right away at the beginning in the simple fact that he seeks Jesus out. He approaches Jesus and kneels before this renegade rabbi. And at the beginning of the story, Jairus has faith in the face of hope, hope that Jesus could actually heal his daughter But toward the end of the story, Jesus asks Jairus to have faith in the face of despair because his daughter is already dead. Jairus is in danger of being the second soil, the one whose faith is robbed in the time of testing. Before, Jesus might have healed her, but now that she's dead, what could he possibly do for her? And all Jesus says to him is, do not fear, just believe. Let the root of the gospel come deeply into the soil of your heart. Jairus is in danger of being the second soil. And with the woman, it's harder to tell at first. It's clear that she is filled with fear. Luke tells us that she trembles. And it was most likely her fear that caused her to reach for the back of Jesus' cloak rather than ask him face to face for healing. And her fear is, of course, understandable. This woman's life has been filled with disappointment, rejection, and constant embarrassment. Her one shot at a normal life is standing in front of her in a crushing crowd. And of course, he's talking with a really powerful religious guy. How embarrassing would it have been to ask Jesus for healing, to declare herself in front of this entire crowd who may not know her as being perpetually unclean. In the beginning, her faith is timid. It's fearful. It's like a smoldering wick that's about to go out completely, yet it still retains a boldness because she reaches for Jesus in spite of her fear. She reaches out to touch him, and then immediately, She's healed. After 12 years, she's healed finally and fully, and yet she's still fearful. Consider the strange question of Jesus. Who touched me? He says. In the midst of a crushing crowd, Jesus says, who touched me? And Luke tells us, all denied it. All of them, including this woman. This woman was filled with fear, not just because she would have to come clean about the fact that she was ritually unclean all this time, but because it was actually unlawful for her to do this. In this sort of religious society where ritual impurity could be passed through human contact, for her to just go around touching people willfully would be a huge deal. So she's still very fearful. And of course, Peter doesn't understand the situation. And he just gives voice to the response of all of us. Dude, there's like an entire crowd of people here. People are bumping into people. And Jesus responds, someone touched me. I know because I know that power has gone out from me. And in saying this, Jesus is not suggesting that he has some sort of magical power that he can't control. And he's just sort of bumping into things and people are getting healed and lights are going on and off. 
No, he has power in the life of the Trinity that he retains in himself as he is connected to God the Father and God the Son. It's the power of healing. It's the power of resurrection. It's the power of God himself. Jesus has not been caught off guard by what's happening. Rather, he is beckoning this woman to come forward in the fullness of faith and declare herself as one that was unclean who has been healed. He is beckoning this woman who has been invisible to everyone around her for 12 years to come into the light and be seen. See, the very word that Luke uses to describe this crowd as choking and crushing Jesus is the same word that he uses to describe the sower in the sower of the seeds parable, those weeds that come up to choke the seed of the gospel. Jesus, in a sense, is looking at this woman out of the corner of his eye, and he's whispering to her, don't let the weeds of this crowd or your embarrassment or fear of rejection choke out the life of your faith. You are not invisible. You're not invisible. And it's as if she realizes she's not going to be able to get away with this and just slip away. And so she comes forward, still trembling, but in faith, she boldly proclaims everything, her uncleanness, her audacity to intentionally pass her uncleanness by touching Jesus, and her immediate healing. And listen to what Jesus says to this poor woman. It's not what she heard from every other doctor. Go ahead, patient. You've been healed. Daughter. Daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She didn't just need a medical cure. She didn't just need a doctor. She needed to be seen. She needed to be known fully. And she needed an embrace and a father and a family. And though her faith was timid and weak, though she entered our story unclean, she departs healed and cleansed and in peace as a daughter of God. What a testimony to Jairus, the synagogue leader who's standing by. As this woman departs clean and claimed, his servant approaches to bring the news of his daughter's death, and Jesus looks back at him and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. These are the responses of faith. Finally, I'd like us to look at love and consequences. What is it that, that Jesus is doing in this story? And how does our understanding of, of his mission and of what he's been about shape our response? As I alluded, alluded to earlier, for this woman to touch Jesus, there's a great audacity involved. It was actually unlawful because her uncleanness was so transmittable. So for her intentionally to touch someone and transfer her uncleanness would be unconscionable. And it's not that it's irreversible. The other person would be required to go through some sort of ritual cleansing to be reinstated into the worshiping community, but it's still a really big deal. And yet Jesus never reprimands her for her audacity. Rather, he just allows her uncleanness to pass on to himself. And in the power of God, he heals her and gives her the status of daughter. But then at the very end of this story, we see an even stranger thing happening. Another way for a member of Israel to become ceremonially and ritually unclean was to have direct contact with a dead body. But as Jesus enters the house of Jairus, he goes right up to the body of the dead girl, and the first thing he does is take her by the hand. And notice that he confers upon her the status of daughter as well. He says, my child, get up. What is happening? 
if Jesus has the power to raise the dead, then there's really no need for him to touch them. There's no need to risk becoming unclean. For that matter, if Jesus has the power to heal and raise the dead, why even be in the room? Why wait for the sick woman to be within arm's length? What sort of a Savior, if he has the power to save, would actually enter into the mess of all of it? And this is the question that plagues and harangues the faith of so many of us, which is why does a good and powerful God allow suffering in the world? In Lament for a Son, Nicholas Wolterstorff cries out these same questions after burying his 25-year-old son. He says this, How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You have allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. If you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. We strain to hear. But instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself, scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God, and a new and more disturbing question now arises. Why do you permit yourself to suffer, O God? What does this mean for life that God suffers? I'm only beginning to learn. Friends, Jesus didn't enter this world to walk around pointing out all of our mistakes and give us some tips on how to do it better next time. No one said he walks up, he reaches out physically and grabs hold of people and heals them, and he says, I know about all of your uncleanness. I know about the uncleanness that you have that you don't even know about. Give it over to me. Take my hand. He takes up our pain and bears our suffering. He takes on the weight of our rebellion against him to the point that it crushes him. He becomes sin for us that we could be reconciled. So some of you this morning may feel a bit like this invisible woman. You may feel as if no one here knows. And if they did, they'd run away. Perhaps you've been walked out on before. And now you just want nothing more than to just keep going unnoticed. If that's true for you, then hear the words of Jesus. My child, don't be afraid. I see you. Your faith has healed you. Just believe and have peace. Step into the light of God's grace. As we come to this table, this is us coming into the light and declaring ourselves unclean people who need to be healed. It tells the deepest truth about us that we could ever have known or ever told ourselves. And what we realize is though if, if you have been healed by Jesus, if you've already been, a, been made a part of his community, then you now take part in his kingdom. Jesus taking on suffering is not the end of the story. No, we have been brought to this place. You have been brought to this place, not to learn how to avoid suffering, but how to enter it. 
And so as we go out from this place, having been fed, having been brought into the light, we can actually walk up to invisible, unclean people and tell them of the love of Jesus and reach out and touch them because we have been healed by our Savior. Let's pray together. Jesus, all of us are so deeply in need of your healing. And it can be such a frightening thing to let go of of the thin blanket of security that we have crafted for ourselves to remain hidden. I ask this morning that in the power of your Holy Spirit, that our security blankets would just be pulled from us, that we would come into the light that it would not be a thing of fear, but it would be a thing of joy and rejoicing. Bring us to your table and feed us and make us whole, we ask in your name. Amen.